All right, if you've got your Bibles this morning, I pray that you do. Turn to the book of Psalm chapter 44. Psalm chapter 44. And just stay seated this morning. Um, instead of standing for the Scriptures, I'm just going to walk you through it and give you an outline of it. So um, I don't want you to be standing for such a long period of time. So just keep your seat as we read it this morning. But um, we are going to continue our series in the Psalm. And you remember, if you were here last week, we began a series of teachings through what we call the um, the Mescal Psalms. And basically it is um, psalms that one of their primary purposes for being written were to give instruction or to impart wisdom in some way. And so whenever they would sing these psalms, one of the purposes behind them was that they were meant to be taught as they sung. And so we are going to go through, I believe there's 12 or 13 of them. We're not going to be able to cover all of them, but we're going to go through um, the end of this year covering those type of psalms and just seeing what kind of instruction and what kind of wisdom uh, the Word of God is trying to impart to us from these particular psalms. And so we're going to be in Psalm 44 this morning. We started in Psalm 32, which is the first uh, mystical psalm. And you remember that uh, basically it was about the sorrow of sinfulness or the sorrow of unconfessed sin in a, in a, in a Christian's life. And then the blessedness, the blessing of, of forgiveness and, and having a God that is ready to forgive and, and willing to forgive and rejoices and, and, and has so much joy over one sinner who repents. And so, we were blessed to see the instruction that we get from Psalm 32 last week. Psalm 42 is actually the next one in line. We're going to skip it primarily because I've already taught it probably um, six to eight months ago, I believe it was. So um, I'm not going to redo that one. So we're just going to go to Psalm 44. But if you'd like to hear Psalm 42, I'm sure you can find it on our website or uh, YouTube, Facebook, somewhere around in there. It's, it's there. If you want that, let me or Nathan know and we can guide you to where you can find uh, the teaching on Psalm chapter 42. So today, Psalm chapter 44, and as I read through this, I'm just going to lay out for you what I believe are um, four or five different sections of this psalm. And what I want to do first is just outline the psalm for you in the context in which it was written. Now, we don't know much about the, um, uh, the, the exact author of this psalm. We don't know much about the timeline and when it was written. There are some clues and some speculation. But because we can't say for certain, what we're going to do this morning is just take it at face value and just see what we can get from it, knowing the context that we do know, and then seeing how that applies to us today in our Christian lives. And so, if you will, let's start in Psalm chapter 44. Uh, you'll notice at the very top it says, To the choir master. So this was a song that was written that was meant to be sung in the congregation of believers gathered together. And it is a masculine, as you see, of the sons of Korah, which were some of the, the Levites. They were uh, the primary musicians of the temple is who they were. And so in verse 1, in verse 1, we have the beginning of this psalm. And notice the first two words, O oh God. That right there tells you to begin with that this is also a prayer that's being prayed. This is spoken first and foremost to, to God by the author here. And notice what the author says to God. Oh God, we have heard with our ears 
our fathers have told us. So notice, they've heard something and they've been taught something from their fathers, right? What have they heard and what have they been taught? What deeds you performed in their days. So now we're looking back at our parents, our grandparents, and we're saying, we've heard and we've been taught all the things that you did um, back in our parents' and our grandparents' day. Let's keep going. In the days of old, you with your own hand, you drove out the nations, but you planted them. Talking about our parents and our grandparents, or in this context, their forefathers. Uh, here in this context, is talking about bringing them into the promised land. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, and now God has brought them in through the wilderness into this promised land, and they, He has drove out the nations that were there, and He planted them in this land flowing with milk and honey. And He's saying, we've heard about that. We know all about it. Our parents told us about it. We heard about it in, in Sunday school or in preaching or wherever the case may be. We've, we've heard about how you afflicted the peoples that were in that land, but our parents and our grandparents, you set them free. We've heard about the, the great deeds. We've been taught about the mighty works that you did in my parents and in my grandparents' life. But what about the works and the mighty deeds that I need in my life? And we're getting there here in just a minute, but keep going with me for the time being. In verse 3, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face saved them because you delighted in them. Now notice the first section here, and if you're taking notes and you want to outline it, verses 1 through 3 is simply, they're remembering what God has done in history. God, we've been taught what you did back then. We know all about your mighty deeds that you did back then. Alright? We've been taught all about it, and that's a good thing to be taught about it. But now move on with me to verse 4 through 8. Notice we go from what He did for them to who He is to us. Now we move from our parents and our grandparents to you and I today. And in verse 4 He says, You are my King, O God. You're not just my parents' King. You're not just my grandparents' King. God, You're my King. You're my God. My parents and my grandparents don't just follow you. I follow you. And then he says, so because of that, ordain salvation for Jacob or for Israel, for your people today. Not just yesterday. Not just what you did back then. But today we need you, Lord. And in verse 5, through you, Lord, we... Again, I'm talking about our parents and our grandparents. We have. Through you, Lord, we have pushed down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against you. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. Because remember, they were taught that it wasn't their sword and it wasn't their bow that saved them. It was you and your right hand. And now we know today that any good that we have in our lives, how many of us do you really believe are responsible for any good that you have in your life today? It is only by the grace of God that you have anything whatsoever. Verse 7, 
but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. And in God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Now I love this. Think about it. The first section is simply, God, we remember and we've been taught what you've done. Your mighty deeds, your salvation for our fathers and our grandfathers. But God, you're, you're our God and you're our King. And, and, and we know that any good that we've had, anything that's took place in our lives, we know that it's only because of you. And our boast and our praise has only been to you continually. But this is where it shifts a little bit. Now I want you to notice, this psalm starts out with praise. God, we know all about you. We know what you've done. We know what you've done in our life. And we praise your holy name because of it. But now we move into the complaint. Notice what he says next in verse 9. But you have rejected us. You ever feel rejected by God sometimes in your life? You've disgraced us. And you've not gone out with our armies. They've suffered a, a major defeat. Major defeat. Some believe this is written prior to or, or right at the, the Babylonian captivity. Some believe it's later. Some believe it's earlier. And there are clues in there. But again, we don't know for certain. So we're just going to understand this morning that they've suffered a tough defeat. A hard defeat. Verse 10. You have made us turn back from the foe. You, Those who hate us have gotten spoiled from us. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter. And you have scattered us among the nations. Some of them have been sold into slavery. They're in different parts of the world. They've been robbed. They've watched probably their, depending on the time period, maybe they've watched their city burn, their temple burn. They've watched their church burn to the ground. Verse 12, you have sold your people for a trifle, for nothing, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and the scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. And so here we move into, we move from the complaint, and here we move into, God, we don't understand why this is happening because the truth of the matter is we're innocent. And now, don't get me wrong, they could be. We know that not every bad thing, not every defeat that happens to us is due to sin in our life, right? That's what Job's friends were guilty of thinking. And it was false. Now we don't know if maybe they're, they have sin in their life, they're not willing to admit. We don't know what's going on. But according to this next verses that we're fixing to read, in their mind, in their heart, they've done nothing wrong and they've been true to God and this is completely unjust. There's no reason for this in their life. Look at verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant, God. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals or in the place of serpents. And you have covered us with the shadow of death. Deepest darkness right here. 
If we had forgotten the name of our God, or if we had spread out our hands to foreign gods, would, you, would not God have discovered this? For He knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And now we move from the, the pleading of innocence to finally we move into the, the, the prayer, the pleading to God to please do something. And then notice where we go in verse 23. Awake, Lord. Why are you sleeping, Lord? Rouse yourself, Lord. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face, God? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. You know what it means? We're using imagery here. You remember last week I told you that the psalmists like to use imagery. It was a lot more... Uh, they were able to, to really help you understand their emotion by saying things like, my tears have been my food day and night. That gives you a much better picture about how much they have cried than it would if they were just to say to you, I have cried a lot, guys. I've cried a lot. No, they use imagery and they said, my, my, my mattress and my pillow is soaked with tears. It's drenched with tears. And here we have the imagery that he betrays and he says, our soul is bowed down to the dust. In other words, I'm not just on my knees praying to you. My entire being is in the dust right now crying out to you. And then he moves on to the next image. And our belly clings to the ground. You know what it means when something clings to something? It's just stuck to it. You can't even get it off of it. Our belly clings to the ground. So in verse 26, here's the plea. God, rise up and come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of Your steadfast love. That word steadfast also means unfailing. Now this is beautiful because I want you to think about this psalm. What's most beautiful of this, about this psalm is just the fact that it's here. We have a, 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 a company of people led by this author that comes in pleading with God saying, God, we trust You. We love You. We know what You've done. We've seen what You've done in our life. But God, where are You now? Where, where are You when we need You the most? It, it's, it feels like You're asleep. It feels like you've forgotten us. It feels like we've just been disgraced. It feels like that you just don't care whether we perish or not. You remember when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and they were going across the, uh, the sea uh, and they were trying to get to the other side and a great storm rose up. You remember what Jesus was doing? He was asleep in the stern of the boat. And the Bible says that the disciples were over there trying to rouse Him and trying to wake Him up. And that's what I think about when I read this. And they were trying to wake Him up. And you remember what they said to Him? Lord, do You not care that we perish? And Jesus wakes up and He says, Peace be still. And the storm calms. And then He looks back at His disciples and He says, Do you still not have faith? In other words, I love what I see in this psalm. We see people that are strong in faith, but then the storm comes and their faith is shaken. 
But even through it all, even through their despairing words and even through their emotions that they're pouring out, when they get to the end of the psalm, through it all, even though they're so shaken by the storm they're in, and when they get to the end, they say, Lord, we still know, even though we don't understand, even though we can't explain this and we don't feel like we deserve this at all, we know Your love is still unfailing. We know Your love is still steadfast. And so this psalm begins in faith and it ends in faith, but somewhere in the middle there's a shakiness of faith. And what I hear God saying whenever they say, God, will You please wake up? You know, I believe God will wake up, even though He's not asleep. Is that me or is that y'all? There I am. All right. I'm back. All right. So here's what I want to do. The summary of the psalm. Lord, we've been taught. We remember all Your mighty deeds. We remember what You've done for our fathers and our grandfathers. But God, You're our King too. We follow You. You're our God. And so, God, we, we need You to save us today like You did back then. We need You to be mighty for us today like You were for our fathers and our grandfathers. We don't just want to know Bible stories about You. We want to see Your mighty works in our life. Right now, we feel rejected. We feel disgraced. We feel like the enemy has triumphed over us. And we feel like that we've been following You. We feel like that we're innocent in this. But... Even though it don't make any sense to us, God, just please let us know that You're there. We're crying out to You with everything that is within us. And we know that Your love is unfailing. And that's the summary of the psalm. And so I want you to remind you of last week whenever I brought this Scripture to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 tells us that the things that were written in the past were written for your and I instruction. They were written so that you and I would know how to navigate this Christian life. And so what kind of application can we get from this psalm today? And that's what the message is about. So here are five lessons that you can get. Five lessons that actually teach us how we are to go through and trust God in the storms of our life, in the seasons of deep darkness that God allows us to go through, how do we navigate that? And we're going to learn those lessons in here. Here's lesson number one. The first lesson, faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. It is a good thing that they believed what God had done with the Red Sea, what God had done with the Jordan River. It is a good thing that they believed that God brought water from a rock and manna from heaven. And it is a good thing that they saw all the mighty works that God had done for their fathers and their grandfathers. They had been taught. And guess what? Faith originates and comes from Hearing. And hearing specifically the Word of Christ. And so what we have in the first part of Psalm 44 is a lesson that teaches us that if you are going to have faith in God and if you are going to go through your trial of darkness and end in faith with God, you're going to have to hear some things about God. You're going to have to be taught some things about God. 
Guys, it's good that we come in here and we study the mighty deeds of what God has done in the past. You know, parents and grandparents, we have a responsibility to teach our children diligently. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, he tells us to talk about the things of God when we sit down. Talk about the things of God when you're walking. Talk about the things of God with your children when you lie down. Talk about the things of God when you rise up. Make sure they're, they're uh, before your eyes always on the doorpost. In other words, we have a responsibility to make sure that the ways of God, the commandments of God, and the mighty works of God are continuously talked about and taught to our children. Why? Because faith comes by hearing. It's not just enough that we bring them to Sunday school. Now, is that good? Yeah, it's good. But it's also our responsibility, and I think that we miss this so many times. I know I do as a parent. Anybody else in here miss this as a parent? We miss this so much as a parent, and yet we are taught to diligently teach them this because faith comes from hearing. How can we expect our children to grow up and go through their seasons of darkness in faith if they've not been taught about people that trusted God before them and how God acted on their behalf as a result of their faith? In Joshua chapter 4, verses 5-7, through we have an instance to where the children of Israel are actually trying to enter into the promised land, but they got one final obstacle in their way, well, other than the, the people that they're going in to conquer. But the obstacle being the Jordan River, and it's overflowing its banks this time of the year. And they have to cross this Jordan River to be able to get to the other side, but it's flooding, and there's no way that they can get across. And so God tells Joshua this right here, and Joshua says it to them. I want y'all to go on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and I want you to take up each of you, and he picked out 12 people to do this. I want each 12, each one of the 12, to pick up a big stone when you walk through this thing on dry land, and I want you to pick up a stone, and I want you to put it on your shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. Now go with me to verse 6. That this may be a sign among you, when your children ask you in time to come, what do you mean by these stones? What do these stones mean to you? And finally in verse 7, Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant, before the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So they were to pick up a stone and carry it on their shoulder. And when they got to the other side, they were to stack these stones up apparently in such a way that when the children came back by it and they looked at that, they would ask the question, what do you mean by these stones? And it was to be a memorial and a reminder for these parents and these grandparents to say, let me tell you about these stones. Let me tell you what God did when He was trying to bring us into the promised land or when He did bring us into the promised land. Let me say it like that. I remember I preached this several years ago. When was Eddie diagnosed with cancer? 2006? 2006. Somewhere around in there I preached this at a little church off in the country somewhere. And um, Eddie was there. 
And I can remember when they diagnosed Eddie with cancer and they, they went in to do the surgery and they looked at him. Um, they, they came back out and we were at Murray Regional, I believe it was, and they came back out and we were all standing there waiting as a room full of people. Church, the whole church showed up. And um, they came out and they basically said, it's bad. It's bad. It's just not good whatsoever. He's eating it with cancer here and here and, um, and it's, just, it's just not good. And I can remember I got so weak in my knees that I almost fainted and I had to lean over on Brother David, who was our pastor at the time. I leaned over on him. I said, let me just rest on you for a minute because I'm fixed to pass out. And, um, and so I started moving my legs and uh, finally got myself back together. But I can remember we went home and we prayed. Oh my God, we prayed. I got on my knees at my work. I remember, and this was back at a time that I didn't really understand a lot. I had a lot of Bible knowledge, but doctrinally wasn't very sound. But I'm sitting here watching these Benny Hens and these healing preachers on TV, and I can remember I'm like the end of this psalm. I'm in the dust on my belly at work, and I'm just crying out to God. Just, God, please hear our prayer. Please, please hear our prayer. This, this is not good, God. Long story short, God healed him. God healed him. The doctors came out didn't give us much hope. On the other side of it, Eddie comes through this thing and lives up until this past year. God gave him many more years. So I remember when I was preaching this that Eddie had just been healed basically. And so after that was over, he went and he got a stone. And he went and he laid it up on this altar right up here somewhere. And it stayed up there for a long time. Is it still at that church? Okay, I can't remember. But wherever it is, he laid that stone up. And the point was, is that whenever somebody saw that stone, hopefully it was going to point back to him and he could tell somebody, let me tell you what God did for me. Because faith comes by hearing. Let me explain something to you parents and grandparents. Your children don't just need to know what God did in the Bible. Do they need to know that? Yes. We need to be taught and we need to hear what God did at the Red Sea and the Jordan and we need to have faith in that. But I also need to know what God did in my daddy's life. I need to be able to see that mom and dad followed him. And this is where I believe we have a problem at today. Let me say I have a problem with it, I know. But the problem is we're too self-sufficient. Now let me explain. I've been preaching in, on Wednesday nights in Revelation and we were in Revelation chapter 3 on the church of Laodicea. And one of their primary problems... Did I give you that scripture? Um, there it is. Here's their problem. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I what? Not realizing... And he's talking to a church here, guys. Not realizing that you are actually wretched, Pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now here's the problem. Do you think this church would literally come? They're coming to church. They're singing their songs. They're listening to the Word of God. Do you really believe that what's happening here is that these people are coming in and they're saying, God, we are gathered here today because we don't need you. You really believe that's what they're doing? No. So how is it that in their life they're saying, God, I don't need you. The truth of the matter is, they don't look to Him for anything. They don't look to Him before they go to work. They don't look to Him when they wake up in the morning and they breathe their breath. They don't get what... They... Listen, I heard somebody say, um, I need Jesus to go to Walmart. Y'all heard that before? 
I need Jesus just to go to Walmart. That's one thing I love about I, I hang out with Ronnie son because he's my next door neighbor. And now, now I'm, I, I ain't going to get on his bad side this morning. Ronnie got some faults too, all right, just like I do. But I'm going to tell you my fault this morning and I'm going to show you where Ronnie gets it right. We won't work on a motorcycle or a bicycle. We won't try to loosen a bolt before Ronnie says, did you pray about that first? No matter, uh, Dawson, Dawson's been growing up in the same household. And no matter what happens in their life, here's Dawson's exact word. That's just the Lord right there. No matter, I don't care what it is. I don't care what happens. If something happens in their life, Dawson will just look at you and say, well, that's just the Lord right there. That's all that is. You know why he does that? Because no matter what they do, no matter what happens, now again, I'm sure they miss it some just like we do. But the best thing that I see and I can learn from this, sometimes I get mad at Ronnie. Let me just tell you. Sometimes we'll be out there working on a motorcycle and I'm talking about I'm trying to get some, a bolt loose or I'm trying to get something and it just ain't working out. And then Ronnie looks at you and goes, have you prayed, preacher? And I'm sitting there thinking. Let me tell you something about prayer. <laughs> That's the way I feel. Now listen, I'm the preacher here. You mind your business. But the truth, I mean, listen, and that's the truth. I'm not saying that to be funny. That is the absolute truth. But we, we, we are that away. We don't realize that we need God for everything, guys. And I wish, and I don't wish, I've got to get better at it. I have to because if I expect my son to have faith in God and to understand that God is not just the God of the Old Testament, God's not just the God that parted the Red Sea way back then, God is the God that still does it today. He still does it today, guys. And I need to start reminding myself that it's not just meals that my child needs to understand that this came from God. I'm glad that my son knows before we eat a meal, the only reason we have it is because God provided it. He knows that. But my son needs to know that no matter what happens in my life, that's just the Lord right there. That's just the Lord. That's all that is. My son needs to understand that, that my daddy can't take a bolt off of my bicycle without the Lord. And the more that I teach my son how to rely on God for everything, the less I become self-sufficient where I'm looking at God day after day saying, God, thank you. I love you so much. But truth is, I don't need you because I've got this. Anybody else in here like me? I've got this, God. I've got this. I don't need you for this. And the truth is, you don't realize how wretched you are. You don't rec recognize how pitiable you are, how poor, how blind, how naked you actually are. And so the first lesson that I learned from this psalm is that faith comes by hearing. And if we are not doing our best to rely on God for everything in our life, how First and foremost, that's probably the reason why... Uh, the truth of the matter is, very few people can actually tell me what your Red Sea has been that God has done in your life. Some of you may be able to pick out one or two things. But the truth of the matter is, if I were to look at you right now and say, tell me where God parted your Red Sea. Some of you would have to go, okay, let me think about that for a little while. Do you think the Israelites really had to think about... I mean, honestly... They saw God move in their life and they told their kids about it and they knew 
And so I think that our problem is because we don't spend enough time relying on God for things in our life, we don't never see God, what God actually did in our life. And if we don't see it, do you think your kids are going to see it? No. And so faith comes by hearing. And if our faith is not growing and we're not teaching our children, then can we really expect our children's faith to be any different than ours? And I'm going to tell you something. I hope my son is far, far more faithful to God than I've been. I do. I hope I can teach him and train him. But the truth of the matter is, he's probably going to be just like me and maybe not even as faithful as I was because every generation that comes back, comes up, falls a little bit further away from God, right? If you came to church once a month, guess how many, guess how often your kids are probably going to come? If you came once a week, guess how often your kids are probably going to do, right? And so we've got some stepping up to do because faith comes by hearing. I got to speed up. Lesson number two. <clears throat> faith believes God for today, not just yesterday. That's the next lesson we learn. God, you're not just the, 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 the king of my fathers and my grandfathers. You're, you're my king. And faith believes that. Faith understands. God, you're not just some distant being that I've been taught about and that I've heard about. You're my king. You're my God. You're not just the God of the Israelites that parted the Red Sea. You're my God today. Today, in my season of darkness, in my suffering. And so the second lesson, faith believes that God is our God today, not just yesterday. Lesson number three. You must know that faith doesn't always deliver in this life. Let me say that again. You learn from this that faith doesn't always deliver in this life. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, we have this beautiful chapter of faith. And if we read only halfway through it, we're tempted to believe that faith always delivers in this life. Man, we look at that and we say, boy, look at Daniel delivered from that lion's den. Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not even a hint of smoke on them. Look at David standing in front of Goliath and, and such a small boy facing such a large giant and yet victorious. Look at Joshua uh, uh, conquering the promised land. Look at, look at Abraham leaving his father and his father's country and, and just going out into a country he don't even know to follow, follow God because he trusts Him. Look at all these victories that we see and we'd be tempted to believe that faith always delivers in this life. But let me tell you something. Faith does not always deliver in this life because look at the turn it takes in Hebrews 11 verse 35. Women receive back, back their dead by resurrection. Man, that's an awesome victory, ain't it? That's great. That's great. But notice the turn. But some were what? Tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Look at verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. Now these are people of faith, okay? These are people that trusted God and they're in a season of darkness and you would be tempted to believe that God just always delivers in this life. And the truth of it is, that's not genuine faith. 
Genuine faith doesn't believe that God's just going to deliver in this life from trials in this world. Genuine faith believes God for future promise. For what God promises after this cursed world is over. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. You know what that means? They didn't even have good clothes to wear. But yet you got preachers preaching on TV today that, that if, if you ain't rich, then you're doing something wrong. Somebody ought told the Apostle Paul that. Somebody ought told John the Baptist that. He says here that they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains. They didn't even have houses to live in. In dens and caves of the earth. And I love verse 39. And all these, though commended through what? Their faith. They did not receive what was promised in this life. Because the promise was not just for this life. And so the lesson we learn is that faith does not always deliver in this life. Sometimes God chooses for the suffering to remain. You remember Job? What's beautiful about the book of Job is that after Satan had already... uh, um, He'd done everything he could do to Job, and Job had still not cursed God. Satan leaves, but the trial goes on. And it continues on all the way through for how long? We don't really know. But as we go through this book, we see that little by little, God starts using this trial to bring something to the surface in Job's life that he didn't even know was there. Job was over here proclaiming just like this psalm did. I'm innocent. I'm righteous. I've been a father to the fatherless. I've given to the needy. I've sit at the gates and people came to me for wisdom and I've gave wisdom. I've judged rightly and, and I've, I've done everything right. So you know what that means? You're at fault. I'm right. You're wrong. And what happened in that trial is what came to the surface is a pride in Job's life that he didn't even know was there. And when this pride comes to the surface through this trial, when he gets to the end of it, God shows up in a whirlwind and takes this like slag that comes up in a refiner's fire. God comes and He wipes it all away. And at the end of the trial, when it's over, Job looks up at God and he says, I make myself sick. I make myself sick. I can't believe that I would ever think for a single second that I was right and you're wrong. And sometimes God chooses for the trial to remain. You remember whenever Jesus is at the Lord's Supper with, um, or at the Last Supper with his disciples, and and Peter is uh, talking about how if everybody else leaves you, Lord, not me, I'll die with you. And then Jesus looked at him. He said, "Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. You know what happens whenever wheat gets sifted." They're trying to get that chaff off that don't belong, right? So that only the the seed is left. And he says, Satan has asked for you and he wants to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. In other words, we're going to allow you to go through the suffering. You're going through a season of darkness. You're going through the trial. And you are going to be sifted like wheat. But I've prayed for you 
that your faith should not fail. And notice what Jesus says next. And when you have returned, in other words, I know you're coming back. When you've returned, strengthen your brethren. When you've overcome your season of darkness and when you're on the other side and your faith is strong again, strengthen your brethren in their season of darkness as well. And so what we see is that sometimes God chooses for the suffering remain. Faith does not always deliver in this life. And you need to know that when you go through your season of darkness, that you cry to God and cry to God and cry to God. It does not mean that God is immediately going to say, Peace be still. And the storm just goes away. Sometimes, guys, and many times, the storm remains. Sometimes we suffer, sawn in two, stoned, destitute, nowhere to live, no clothes. And those are people that were commended by their faith. Faith does not always deliver in this life. You need to know that if you're going to go through your season of darkness. Their faith didn't remove the suffering, but it kept them trusting Him. Notice in Psalm 44, verse 8 again. He says here, In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to Your name forever. You notice what they said? No matter what you do, God, we don't understand it. It don't make sense. We are so confused right now. But we're not going to quit praising Your name. That is faith that understands that sometimes faith doesn't deliver in this life. And so no matter what happens, God, we're not going to quit praising Your name forever. That's the kind of people that at the end of Psalm 44 say, Lord, rise up, come to our help, and redeem us for the sake of Your unfailing love. We know that no matter how deep the darkness is that You allow us to go through, Your love does not fail. And we know this because we know that faith does not always deliver in this life. And if you understand that, you'll be able to navigate your season of darkness too. Lesson number four, don't deceive yourself. You remember what they said there in verses 17 through 22? Lord, all this has come upon us even though we have not forgotten You. We have not been false to Your covenant. Our heart has not turned back. Our steps have not departed from Your way. Yet You have broken us in the place of jackals. You, 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 God, have done this even though we're perfect. Y'all hear that? Now listen, is it possible that they had not broke the covenant? Yeah, it's possible. I don't believe it's true. The reason I don't believe that is because all of these things that he names off are the things that God told them in Deuteronomy. If you are faithless to me, this is what's going to happen to you. Uh, Just a few of them if you want to see it. Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 37. Notice what um, what he said to them here. And you shall become... This is if... This is if... You are faithless to the covenant. You shall become a horror, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. And again, if you were to go up to verse in Psalm 44, um, verse 10, you see that that's exactly what happened. Um, you see in verse 14, you have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the people. So there again, You see, this is what God told them would happen. This is what God happened. So to me, it's very likely that they were actually 
faithless to God in this and they're suffering this because of them turning away from God. But in their own hearts and their own minds, they looked at their life and they said, we don't do anything wrong. We are right with God. We've got it all together. And the Bible warns us time after time again, do not deceive yourself. Now again, I'm not saying that just because you're going through a season of darkness that it is due to sin. But how many of you know that sometimes, sometimes our seasons of darkness are the discipline of God in our life? And the Bible says, the one who He loves, He disciplines. He chastises. And many times it's through suffering that he does that. Go back to the life of David last week. What happened to David after, after his sin? God said, let me tell you what's going to happen. Your child is going to die. And that ought to make all of our hearts jump up in our throats right about now, shouldn't it? But that was a discipline that God, you look at it you say, that's not fair. You say whatever you want to. God chose to discipline David in that way. And we need to be very mindful that when we go through seasons of darkness in our life, that we need to be careful not to deceive ourselves. It is possible that we should examine ourselves and be honest and see, is there unconfessed sin in my life? Is there something? Now, if you don't see any and you can't find any and, you, and you're honest with yourself, then I'm not trying to be like Job's friend here and say, you, 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 and if you would repent, if you would do this. I'm not trying to do that. Maybe it's just God's bringing something to the surface that you don't even know is there yet. Could be. But whatever the case may be, you need to understand, faith does not always deliver in this life. Sometimes God chooses for the suffering to remain. And that is a lesson that you need to learn. So don't deceive yourself into thinking that you've got it all together because you may not actually have it all together. Lesson number five, last one. Don't stop praying and pray with everything that is in you. I love the imagery that is used. I mentioned it earlier, but look at verse 23 again. Awake, Lord. Now, do you really think that they actually believed that the omniscient, um, omnipresent God was actually asleep? Imagery. This is imagery here. And they're looking at him, they're saying, Lord, I know you're not asleep, but it, it sure seems that way. You ever felt that way in your life? Lord, I know you're not asleep, but, but, but wake up. Why are you sleeping, oh Lord? Rouse yourself, God. You really think God's got to get up and go, man, I got to shake his sleep off of me. Whew, didn't realize what y'all was going through down here. That's not the way it works, but that's the way it felt. And so they say, God, get up, please, arouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face, Lord? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? And then look at verse 25. For our soul is bowed down to the dust. We're humbled as far as we can go. We can't get any more humble. Our soul, our very soul is in the dust. And let me tell you something. You don't know how that feels until you've been in a real season of shadow of death, of deep darkness, to the point that you are on your belly with everything in you, crying out to God with all that you have. And unfortunately, it takes some of the hardest times in our life to bring us to this point. 
And let me tell you something. There's no better place to be. There's no better place to be. God, we're very, our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. We can't even get up. We, we pray. We do not quit praying. How many of us going through seasons of darkness will come to an altar and we'll pray and then we'll get up and that's, that's about the end of it. We just sit back and go, okay, God, I'm just, just waiting on You to deliver. I'm telling you, you are to hit your knees and you are to pray and you are to keep praying and you are to keep praying and it ought to be like your very belly is just clung to the ground because you have prayed. You ought to be like this, uh, this psalmist that says, I've prayed so much, I talk in my sleep. I've prayed so much that I can't even quit talking while I'm sleeping. I'm still praying. I do not cease to pray. And then in verse 26, God, rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of Your unfailing love. Here is again the last lesson. Don't stop praying and don't stop believing. I understand faith gets shaky in the middle. I understand that sometimes we don't understand. You know, there are so many preachers. Y'all remember Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11? Very famous verse. This verse, I didn't give it to them, but it's a very famous verse. You'll know it well. They're being led off into Babylonian captivity. And Jeremiah says to them, uh, through the inspiration of God, he says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to, to give you hope. Plans to give you a future. And you know how many of us preachers have preached that today and, and we have convinced people that what God meant was, I'm just going to save you from it all and I'm going to bring you back into the land and I'm going to do... Let me tell you what the promise of hope in the future was that God was actually giving them. I'm fixing to send you off for 70 years into slavery. That's your future. That's your hope. I'm fixing to discipline you and it's going to hurt. Some of you are going to be sold into different parts of the world. Some of you men are going to become eunuchs. If you don't know what that means, come see me later. We'll talk. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, some of y'all are going to be thrown in lion's dens. Some of y'all are going to be thrown into furnaces of fire. Some of y'all are going to go through tough, tough times, but I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to give you a future. Plans to give you hope. Here's what God is saying to us this morning. Don't matter what I choose to allow you to go through in this, in this life, if you are my child, I know the plans that I have for you. And so if it's the next 70 years, you know, we love to see the victories in the Bible, don't we? We love to see the David and the Goliath, but how many of us back up and realize that for 40 days the armies of Israel stood on the hillside trembling at this mocking enemy that comes out and taunts them and who their God is for 40 days? We don't see that part, do we? All we see is that the minute Goliath come out, David took him down. And that's a great victory. And we love that victory. We love to hear about Noah and, and the ark. And, and we love to hear about the rainbow and how God saved this family. But you don't hear about the 120 years that he was ridiculed and mocked while he built an ark in a place that had not yet seen rain. And he preached to a people about wrath that was coming and they laughed at him. You don't see the 120 years of suffering, do you? You see the victory. Let me tell you something. 
there will always be a victory. And Jesus is our victory. That's the point of all the stories. That's the point of David and Goliath. The point is not that you need to be more like David. Can you? Yeah. Should your faith be more like his? Yes. But the point is we need somebody like David to step up because we're the trembling army up on the hill that can't beat our own giant. And we need a victor to step in on our behalf. The victories are great and we need to hear about the victories. But you need to also remember that the victory does not come without suffering on your part. Yea, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they will suffer. That's biblical. And so in your season of darkness, again, I remind you, and if you don't have any seasons of darkness, maybe it's possible that um, you're not His child. He said, He whom He loves, He disciplines. And if you are without discipline, guess what? You're an illegitimate. You know what that means? You don't belong to Him. And so you need to be able to look at your life and understand that God is going to discipline His children. That God is going to allow suffering to take place. There are going to be seasons of darkness. And when they do, faith comes by hearing. Parents, your children are going to face seasons of darkness. And if they don't see faith in your life and they don't see God parting the Red Seas in your life, do you really think their faith is going to be very strong in their life? Probably not. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. And so it's my prayer this morning in closing that you understand that faith does not always deliver in this life. But there will be a victory. And my faith is not in whether or not He does everything for me and everything goes perfect in this life. My faith is that when this world of suffering and curse is over, there will be no more curse. There will be no more crying. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. And that is what we're looking forward to. And if right now He chooses for me to be stoned, sawn in two, sold slavery, whatever the case may be, God, I'm going to praise Your name now. I'm going to praise Your name then. And I'm going to praise Your name in the future. No matter what happens, I trust You. That's how you have faith through your seasons of darkness. If y'all will stand this morning, this is a time of response to the Word of God. And um, whatever it is that God has spoken to you, I invite you to humble yourself before Him and just pour your heart out. Um, if there's something that we can pray with you about, we're here for you this morning. But now is the time for you to respond to however it is that He has spoken to you today.